Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Today we'll learn how to live off the land, literally. We're going foraging with a master forager, Dr. Mark Borderbergen, who teaches people how to find wild edible plants and mushrooms in their neighborhoods, along roadsides, and in certain select public parklands. Let's jump right in and start with the definition of foraging. The basic definition would be simply uh, using, finding and using the wild edible and medicinal plants around you. So taking you know, food and medicine from nature rather than the grocery store or the drugstore. Uh, in your book, I believe I read that uh, you have sort of found that there are three groups, three groups of people who you find are interested in foraging. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because there's some overlap between two of them, and then the third are often a world of their own. So the often the world of their own are the foodies, the people who are looking for new, exotic, interesting food to cook up and amaze and astound their friends. The other two categories are the you know, the preppers and the hippies. And <laughs> what's surprising with that is they both are worried about the food supply, you know, what may happen to it. And so they're, they're trying to get back, take control of their food security. So at the, at the beginning of the classes, when they kind of realize who the other side is, there's sometimes a little friction. But by the end of the class, they're like trading <laughs> recipes and so forth, bringing people together. Right. Um, so if people were interested to go foraging uh, to find wild plants, where would they go? They just start in their own backyard? Yeah. In fact, here in the state of Texas, uh, due to the sheep and cattle wars of the 1800s, most quote unquote public land is actually uh, does not allow foraging on it. The state parks, the city parks, there are some exceptions, but what most people think of as public land, you are not allowed to forage on. Some exceptions are in the national forests, you are allowed to harvest one gallon of mushrooms per person for your own personal use per day. So you can't collect them to sell, but you can collect them for your own uh, eating and medicinal uses. In the Big Thicket National Preserve, you are allowed to harvest one pint of berries per day. But the other public property where you are allowed to forage is roadsides. Ah. Every spring, the Department of Public Safety issues a, a notification that, yes, you are allowed to pick blue bonnets. Stop calling us. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're actually allowed to harvest the aerial parts, everything above ground of plants along Texas roadsides. Now, I strongly recommend if you're going to do that, go out in the middle of nowhere, low traffic roads, that sort of thing, right. uh, rather than busy roads. But yeah. Wow. But otherwise, it is private property, your own backyard, your neighbors, that sort of thing. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Dr. Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen. By formal training, he's a petroleum chemist. And uh, by informal training, he's a master forager. And we're talking about foraging. Uh, and you were just talking about places where we could go uh, in order to find wild plants. Um but are there any, uh, of course, you know, like we want to be respectful of the land and the plants. So what are some ethical rules that you have that we need to follow when we are foraging? Sure. As a forager, there are four things you need to respect. 
You need to respect the law. You need to respect the land. You need to respect the plant. And you need to respect yourself. And let me go over each one quickly. And respecting the law, you need to know your state laws that cover foraging. Every state is different. And so you need to understand what they are. And respect the land is simply leave no trace. Uh, you should, there should be no sign that you were there. Please pick up your litter, ideally pick up other people's litter, make the world a better place. In respect the plant, that uh, talks about you want to harvest in a sustainable manner. On my website, Foraging Texas, there's over 225 plants currently, and I'm adding more. Each one has an abundance code. Huh? Is it invasive? Is it plentiful? Is it common? Is it uncommon? Is it rare? Is it endangered? And that tells you how much of the plant you can harvest. And obviously, especially with the rare and endangered, the answer is don't. But I have them on there to bring attention to their plight. And then finally, respect yourself. Uh, you want to make sure you don't eat anything poisonous. And that has two sides to it. First, properly identifying the plant to make sure it is the plant you think it is, but also making sure the soil and the surrounding area is clean and safe because what's ever in the soil is very likely in the plant too. Okay, good rules. So uh, I understand that where certain plants grow can tell us something about the soil in that particular place. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? What can we learn from, our, uh, from the plants that pop up about the soil? Sure. They're great indicators of what's in the soil, but more importantly, what may be lacking in the soil, mm -hmm. and also if it's acidic or basic. So some examples of this, a uh, very common, wonderful you know, weed that's out there right now is chickweed. It likes rich, healthy soil that's high in nitrogen, but mm -hmm. it does not like acidic soils. So if you see chickweed grown, that means you got good soil. If you see henbit, same sort of thing. It likes high nitrogen and also lamb's quarters uh, just starting to sprout up now. They're all indicators that the soil is high in nitrogen and generally very rich. On the other end of the spectrum, things like dandelions or wood sorrel indicate that the soil is very low in nutrients, in particular in calcium. Hmm. Um, so if you are trying to grow some sort of calcium-rich plant, you might have a problem there. And then still others, things like plantain, it's also just popping up now. That's another indicator of the soil has a very low fertility uh, and it also prefers heavy clay. So you might have to add some amendments to that, some sand or something to break it up. Right. Uh, purslane, on the other hand, it's another one. It prefers rich soil and it indicates the soil is high in phosphorus which is an indicator. That's why you see it growing in a lot of gardens and so forth that have been fertilized because it's right. going, yeah, this is good soil. <laughs> and then things like curl dock or goldenrod uh, indicate you have more of a wet area that's poorly drained. So there's lots of resources out on the internet that can tell you, you know, what are your weeds and the wild plants around you telling you? And yeah. The best thing then from that is it gives you an indication what, you know, what domesticated plants would grow best in those sort of soils. Let's say you're out foraging and you see some land on which uh, it looks like there's a really rich source of wild <laughs> edibles, <laughs> but it's not your land. Uh, it's private property. Can you go 
sort of knock on the door and say, hey, can I wander your land and pick your plants? <laughs> yes, I, this is something I do fairly often. Now, it helps that I have a published book. I can show them my driver's license and this is me and I noticed that. But you know, the, the trick I find a lot of people are really interested in wild edible plants. And so if you can have a book to show them, hey, I noticed as I was driving by, I saw this plant. I was wondering, could I harvest some? And, you know, and usually the, the landowner is like, whoa, this is really interesting. You know, what else might I have? And so you become, you know, an impromptu foraging instructor. So the more you know, the better off you are. Or you, the two of you go off and explore together with, you know, one of the, the foraging books. Right. So it's, it's, you know, obviously look at the property, you know, if there's, you know, beware of dogs or, you know, things like mm. that. If they're, you know, you can kind of judge, you know, if it's a really nice yard or something or, you know, the landscaping right around the house is really nice. They're usually very proud of their land and are quite excited to, you know, someone else appreciate it with them. Right. You know, whereas it's all junky and trashy. Well, you, you know, you might be okay. You might not. Have you had any bad experiences when you've done that? No, I'm pretty careful about who I approach, but I've also, again, because I can show them my book and you know things right. like that, it right. it opens doors. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little surprised because I, I like to think I'm a little scary looking, but apparently not. <laughs> okay. Um. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, you don't want to be eating poisonous plants. So proper identification is obviously really important. Um, but what do, you, what do you tell your students about that? How should they, um, how can they make sure that they are properly identifying the plant? Over the years, I've learned people don't know how to look at plants and they don't know what are the important structural features they need to plant. They, they really have no clue on how to identify a plant because they've never been taught that. Uh, so in my classes, I go through the structural features you need to know. And I tell people, you need to match up at least five structural features of this mystery plant with whatever your reference guide is. And this can be, you know, the size of the flower, the color of the flower, the number of petals of the flower, the arrangements of the flowers on the plant, the leaves, same thing with the leaves, the arrangement of the leaves on the plant, the vein pattern of the leaves, what the edge of the leaf looks like. Once you start thinking about plants and looking at the guides, they're very specific on talking about, you know, the leaves will have this structure and this arrangement. The flowers will have this structure and this arrangement. If you just pay attention to that, you'll be fine. I tell people, if you can tell the difference between a peach and a nectarine, you are good to go. You have the observational <laughs> skills you need to learn foraging. You just need to use those skills. Right. And then in the case of mushrooms, if I can add uh, mushrooms, because they are a lot more similar, uh, you kind of need to look at eight to 10 structural features. And most people don't realize mushrooms have eight to 10 structural features, but they do. If somebody's out foraging, should they carry a book with them? I mean, if, if you're out foraging, you shouldn't just eat the plant as soon as you see it, right? <laughs> right, right, right. You want to spend time to identify it. Uh, the basic rule of thumb is you want to find it and properly identify it without eating it at least three times in the wild on three different locations, uh, you know, different times to, to really, you know, know that, yes, you know, it. you, you aren't going to 
mistake it for something else. If you mistake a plant for it, you got to go back and you know find it three more times. But you want to train your eye. So you definitely want the, the guide with you. The second best place to keep your foraging books is in your bathroom. So when you're sitting in there, you know, doing your daily business, you can flip through them and you can kind of read through and train your eye and train your mind as to what you're looking for. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here today with Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen, a chemist uh, and a master forager. And we're talking about foraging. You talked about uh, identifying plants properly, which is really important. But I understand that maybe there may be other dangers involved when you go foraging, such as wildlife and other things you may encounter. Sure, most definitely. Uh, Copperhead snakes are a big problem. They like to hide, especially in the blackberry and dewberry thickets. So it's always important to have a, a walking stick where you can just kind of pound the ground for a bit. The vibrations alert the snakes and they'll usually go away rather than hang out and try and bite you. Uh, fire ants and also chiggers, the, you know, those are bad. So it's always good to have some sort of uh, insect repellent, especially on your socks and ankles and pants to prevent you know, getting problems with those. The other issue, especially with mushroom hunters, uh, like I said, you can hunt for mushrooms in the, the national forests getting lost. So you want to make sure you have some sort of, most of those places have really bad cell phone reception. So if you are relying on your cell phone to find your way back to the trail, you may be in for trouble. Right. So you want to have some sort of GPS and of course your basic, you know, wilderness survival stuff, you know, some water, uh, you know, space blanket, things like that, pocket knife, a way to make fire, those sort of things. So, but yeah, it's mainly the little tiny insects that cause the most problems. Have you ever encountered any of these dangers like snakes? Or- oh, many times. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And especially uh, like the the snake guards uh, or snake proof boots are, are a good choice if you're in an area that's heavy with copperheads, especially like the woods and the forests. Right. Okay. Um, talk about some of your favorite edible plants that you find and about where and when you would find them. Sure. Uh, one of my favorites is wood sorrel, the oxalis species. They have a wonderful tangy, lemony sort of flavor. They are good raw. They're really good added to different cream soups, like cream of potato and cream of chicken and even like cream of broccoli they make taste better they bring a nice tangy undertone to the creaminess. It's also good mixed into butter and have like a, a almost a lemon butter sort of thing. So you would use it pretty much in cooking where you would use a lemon, but you add it after the food is cooked, except in the case of the cream soup. So it's very useful. There's several different varieties, uh, especially here in Texas. There are some with small little yellow flowers that grow in people's yards. Most people think they are clovers because they have that three-leaf clover-like shape. Um, But there are some subtle differences in plant structure. Uh, Out in the more woodsy, shaded area, there's some really huge ones with big purple flowers. And what's nice about them is they're pretty much available all year round, but very, very, very tasty. Uh, Another good one are wild violets. 
Again, they're pretty much available all year round in Texas. They have very distinctive heart-shaped leaves and the traditional violet flower. In the winter, they will be out creeping into people's yards and you know out in the sun. But during the summer, they retreat back and are only found in the deeper, cooler, shaded woods areas. Uh, wild onions. Texas has about 14 different native wild onions. So every location and every time of year, there is some wild onion about, which are you know, wonderfully tasty. Right. Uh, and now is there, uh, I think I was reading in probably in your book about uh, there's some plant that kind of looks like a wild onion, but is not. Yeah, that's one thing with the wild onion in in Texas. There's about three different plants that look like wild onions and two can be downright uh, poisonous, like deadly poison. And the other may just give you an upset stomach. The nice thing is the mimics do not have any sort of onion smell. So if you find something that looks like onion and smells like onion, you found a wild onion. You're good to go. If it uh, looks like an onion but does not have an onion smell, it just has kind of a, a grassy smell, yeah, that's don't eat that. The other area that I understand you know a lot about is the medicinal value of some of these wild plants. The whorehound is quite plentiful, and that is great for respiratory issues. So for opening up the, the airways, uh, you know, the... You might remember whorehound candy, yeah. uh, which has a very interesting, yeah, that was, the whorehound is, it's it's a fairly bitter and frankly unpleasant tasting plant. It's kind of an uh, acquired uh, flavor, but right. making it into, a, you know, basically boiling it with sugar and making a candy out of it, it's really good for soothing coughs and infl- uh, inflammations. It also has some very potent antioxidant and anti-cancer properties, antibacterial and anti-diabetic. So it helps uh, with blood sugar control. Another really good one is surprising to people is the prickly pear cactus. And you know most people understand, yeah, it's edible. They don't realize it has some really neat medicinal effects. One of the ways scientists look at medicinal plants is they look at a culture that eat some particular plant or mixture of plants and say, okay, are there certain health issues that seem to be lacking in these people? And a research was uh, looking at the Southwestern people, people in the Southwest, and realized, wow, there's very little cancer across these communities. And through assorted research and study, they narrowed it down to the eating of the prickly pear pads and fruit. There's something in them, uh, you know, to the point where they were doing the double blind test. One of the things they were doing to test it, they find people that had cancer of a type that was very susceptible for it to reoccur even after treatment mm-hmm. and had them include prickly pear in their diet versus people who didn't. And they actually, the the difference was so huge that they felt morally, morally obligated to stop the test and start telling the people on the placebo, you need to start taking the prickly pear cactus. All right. Wow. Because <laughs> it's so potent at that. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here today with Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen, a chemist. And we're talking about foraging and actually hear about medicinal use of wild plants. Um, I understand there are many 
benefits to foraging. Can you talk about what those benefits are? Yeah. So besides just the nutritional medicinal value of the plants they're getting, there's a lot of physical and mental benefits that people aren't aware of. Uh, for instance, there's been some Japanese research that's really interesting. If you know anything about the Japanese demographics, their, their culture is getting very old very fast and they don't have a lot of young people. But one thing they found is the more time the people spent walking on uneven ground throughout their life, the uh, less likely they are to fall and break something when they're older. So the walking on the uneven ground, it builds up balance and the core muscles you need to maintain your balance. And so you're less likely to fall and break a hip. It also uh, stimulates the brain more. And so there is less dementia and Alzheimer's in people who spent a lot of time walking on uneven ground. Wow. Uh, with the brain also, remember, we evolved out in this wild area where we were constantly scanning for dangers and the ground was uneven. So while you're outside, your brain is suddenly thrust back in the sort of ecosystem that it evolved in. So it's constantly sensing the wind and the, the, the you know, peeking around, trying to make sure there's no saber-toothed tigers or anything like this. So your brain activity goes up through the roof back to where it used to be. And so the end result from that, again, is reduced dementia and Alzheimer's later on in the future. But also people with attention deficit disorders, they've hmm. found... Uh, found just spending three, uh, sorry, 30 minutes, uh, three days a week out in the wild, off trails, just you know, going through the, the, the nature back the way we evolved, has really significant improvement effects on their ability to stay focused and attention because their brain got that stimulation it so desperately craves. Wow. And then also, if you are in a neighborhood and you're forging your yard and you're starting to see things in your neighbor's yard and you start talking to them, you end up building a neighborhood network. And there's a lot of proof that having a strong social network is really good. People live longer and are more healthy just because there are other people that they interact with and care about. That was one of the side effects of this whole coronavirus is the you know, stopped social interactions. And the result of that has been really bad physically and mentally. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's you know, all sorts of interesting benefits, but physically, mentally, right. it's good for and you. Plus you get the free food. Oh, yuck, yeah. Economically, it makes a lot of sense. And you don't have to uh, cultivate it or uh, water it or... Mm -hmm. I, I, I laugh at gardeners because I think you, you guys work way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and they're throwing out weeds that are as nutritious, if not more nutritious than, you know, some of the plants they're trying to grow. So Yeah, I know. I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> so Hopefully not for much longer. No. <laughs> um, okay. So tell us about your book, which is called The Idiot's Guide to Foraging. Yeah. So yeah. that uh I was approached in 2014. Um, and by the Idiot's Guide series, you know, they make all sorts of books and they said, you know, we'd like you to write the Idiot's Guide Foraging. And they gave me pretty much free reign. The, the demands were it had to cover all of North America and I could not include the medicinal properties. They did not want medicinal properties in there. They felt there was liability issues there. Mm -hmm. And then they gave me three months to write it. But when I was writing it, I have a huge collection, pretty much every foraging edible plant book out there I own. And it quickly became apparent there's a lot of problems with them. One, 
being most of them have one picture of the plant at one, you know, second in its life. So I wanted lots of big pictures of the plant at different stages of its life. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out some common dangers that could uh, render an edible plant inedible. In particular, if you put down fire ant killer or grub worm killer or things like that, just broadcast over your yard, Mm -hmm. basic rule of thumb is, let's say it is a once a year application type product. I recommend you wait two years before you eat anything from your yard. Uh, other things, areas that flood or either side of the sidewalk, we call that the dog pee zone. So you got to watch out for that. But a lot of areas in urban environments, the sanitary sewers and the storm sewers are linked. So when you get a heavy rain and you see water actually coming out of the sewers, they are very likely bringing everything that has been flushed down the toilet for the last six months too. So you want to wait probably another six months before you forage anywhere there. Do check out Mark's Foraging Texas website. It's a treasure trove of information on wild and edible plants. The website is at foragingtexas, that's one word, dot com. Please tell people you know about this podcast, and thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. Music